Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. There's a limit to what you can get out of life from a screen. And there's a limit what you can get out of life by being in sort of one place and having a limited version of the entire human experience. Uh, it's the, it's what we're talking about. It's like, Oh, I never left my small town. It's like, okay, well that's, that's a limited version of what the world has to offer. Right. And, um, and it was just so visceral to me. It was so visceral to me. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. David, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. My pleasure. Srini, how do you, how yeah, it do is you Srini. like how to guess? Yeah, it is Srini. Srini. Yeah. Guess. It's funny. You, you know, the only person who calls me Srinivas to this day is my mom when she's yelling at me. Okay. Like anybody calls yeah. me Srinivas, I'm like, shit, I'm in trouble. Like, if I'm going to do that, like head tilting, anti lilt. Exactly. When I do it. Exactly. Okay. Well, so you have a new book out called The Future is Analog. I loved your previous book, The Revenge of Analog, as somebody who swears by physical books, writes in a bullet journal every day. Uh, and is always big on meeting people face to face instead of online. I would much rather be doing this with you in person, but geographic Amen. limitations being what they are. Uh, but before we get into all of that, I wanted to start by asking you, what is the very first job that you ever had and what impact did that end up having on what you've ended up doing with your life and your career? Ski instructor. Um, yeah. Okay, that is a uh, cool ass first job. Like most people, I worked, I worked at McDonald's. Like, yeah. Listen, they don't call it white privilege for no reason, right? Yeah. Um, but also, you know, I I was in high school. I uh, I was someone who was obsessed with skiing, and has always been. I've been skiing since I was three years old. I'm a better skier than I am a rider, um, and uh, pretty much everything else in life. <laughs> and I had I had sort of seen an article in powder magazine about the ski bum lifestyle. And I brought it to my friend, Stephen Dan, AKA Steely Dan and like a grade nine assembly. And I'm like, dude, when we finish high school, we got to move out West and like get jobs as, you know, ski instructors. And, and we had just watched the seminal ski movie called Aspen extreme mm -hmm. starring Paul gross and uh, Peter Berg, who went on to become a major director. Yeah. Um, and it's sort of the fish out of water tale of two 
ski bums from Michigan who move to Aspen to become ski instructors and uh, everything that happens to them. Sort of a, a drama. Great movie. Well, isn't there um, a beautiful British woman who's the, the main female? Bryce. Bryce. You're speaking of Bryce. Of course. Bryce. Yeah. Um, yeah. A fabulous movie. Ella I would, Hughes. I, if I could start an Aspen Extreme podcast, I would. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I got a job, you know, for a couple of years teaching here at the local hill in uh, outside Toronto, which uh, when you talk about glamorous, cool jobs, I mean, you're talking about like... 12 four-year-olds mm-hmm. <laughs> and trying to just get the ski um the boot into the binding that's like half the time like it's it's literally the most backbreaking job you know outside of like heavy construction or like working in an open pit chinese coal mine like yeah. it's it is the twisting required uh, but great and then ended up teaching i taught in whistler i've taught in australia um, I tried teaching my kids, but then I'm like, nope, I need some 16 year old to do this mm-hmm. for me because my back can't handle it. Yeah. Well, what did your students, particularly the younger ones, teach you about being a better teacher? Um, I think you just got to uh, you have to let go of a certain type of belief of how things are going to go, because each student, each day is different and the weather's different and the snow's different, right? There's all these elements that you have no control over and you really have to sort of adapt to all those things that you have no control over and kind of do as much as you can to let it roll off your back. Because if you're going to become frustrated by the conditions or someone's becoming frustrated, or you have one person in the class who's much better than the others, you know, it, 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 you're not going to get anywhere. And so it's, it's that release of control and acceptance of a certain kind of um, inevitability of, of the, the variability of life um, that allows you to sort of figure it out and just know that like, no, you're, you're not there to make every single person the greatest skier in the world. You're just there to like show them a good time, keep them safe, maybe teach them one thing that allows them to enjoy this sport that they're paying a tremendous amount of money to do even for one day yeah. better. Right. Well, it's funny. In the moment you said, uh, you know, show them a good time. Uh, I'm sure you've seen the South Park episode, right? Where they're teaching the kids how to ski. And the guy is oh, just God, like, yeah. you know, pizza, French fry. If you pizza when you're supposed to French fry, you're going to have a bad time. That's it. That's all you need to know. Really? really? So get out there on the mountain, kids. Oh, <laughs> speaking of kids on the mountain, the the thing that's so intriguing to me, I remember being up at this place called Mountain High here in Southern California and there's this little girl with her dad and she starts just bombing down these moguls and she looks back at her dad. She's like, come on, dad, you're dragging. <laughs> I'm like, wow. So uh, what is it about that? Like when kids start, particularly with sports like skiing or surfing, you see these kids who start at such a young age. It, part of me thinks they, they don't have any semblance of fear. You know, their center of gravity is low. Like, why is it that they pick up things like this so fast at a younger age and then you get to be my age i was 30 something when i learned to snowboard but the first time i went in college i was the only one of my friends who couldn't get down the mountain without falling now none of those people could hold a candle to be on the mountain yeah i think it's um it's it there you know the inbuilt fear uh the genuine analog realities of the human body and its lack of elasticity over the years um mm-hmm. which decreases as you age 
Um, but you know, it's interesting. Like I taught kids as young as three and I taught people for the first time, like in their seventies and eighties. Wow. Um, uh, you know, and, and I think, you know, as a kid, like your, your conception of the world is so pure. If something's fun, you want to do it to its absolute max. If you don't like something and you're afraid, you're, you're going to like break down in tears. Adults are kind of in between. We, we know how to manage those emotions, whereas kids are sort of so open and honest about it. So all of a sudden, you know, the kids are terrified when they start. They're really, really scared, um, you know, and, and I've seen that with even my own kids with skiing or biking, right? And then all of a sudden there's like, they pass, they might pass a certain point and it clicks. And all of a sudden it's like off to the races and bombing down. My daughter um, is, has that, like she, she's always had this sort of fearlessness with skiing. And I remember when she was four and we were in Lake Louise, Alberta, and my brother, who's like a speed demon, like just took off down the mountain. She's like, Uncle Dan, and just went after him. Like, so much faster than a much bigger seeper mountain than she'd ever been on. And I just remember watching her go and all of a sudden her legs start to wobble and like, it just explodes. Right. Like that. She just, she, you know, she's like the poorly designed airplane that like, you know, fails the test. Like it just, just like crashed down, but there was no conception of like, I better moderate my speed down this hill. You know, it was just like, I'm going yeah. for it. And, um, and I think that's something that you learn as you get older in life that, you know, there are consequences that you're, you should maybe moderate your speed on certain things, but the purity of, of the mind of a child, um, you know, doesn't, doesn't allow for that. That's, that's wonderful. That's, you know, that's why playgrounds are awesome. And kids are constantly breaking their arms constantly. Mm -hmm. Like it's, you know, carnage. Well, it's funny because my parents, there was one toy within their means that they would not buy me for the life of them. And it was a skateboard. And I remember, you know, after I started surfing, I was in Venice one day because I was staying at my parents' house and they're inland. And I brought home uh, a longboard. And my mom was like, what the hell is that? I was like, you know what? I'm 36 years old. This is a skateboard. I'm done with your no skateboarding bullshit. I'm like, I'm going to skateboard. And my dad went to Costco and like, he's, he said, here's a helmet. Please use it. Nice. And that was it. Yeah. Uh, but it was funny. I, I jokingly say, I was like, that's what happens, mom. I'm like, you, and my logic, I, I told my mom, I was like, you realize how stupid that argument was? She was like, kids who skateboard break bones. I was like, yeah, adults who skateboard break bones and those bones don't so, heal. Oh, and yeah. then you end yeah. up with a son who's got a pathological inability to avoid anything that, you know, uh, that involves a board under his feet. <laughs> so like, yeah, and it's you know. yeah, it's, it's funny. I'm I, I'm also like a late later to life skater, right? Like I I took up I took up surfing, skateboarding, and surfing when I was in my twenties. Um, yeah, because I'm you know live inland, and I don't know, it was never never something that I did. And um, yeah, there's like I got a surf skate last year, which is um, you know a type of skateboard. And I, I remember I went to. Uh, it, you know, I took it out to the park and I was doing it at the hockey, the sort of hockey rink. And it was like, I just, just in a pair of slip on vans and my ankles were killing. Like I was hobbling the next day and I went to the skate store and the first guy who owns the store was like, yeah, you need a pair of like high tops, you know, that, that'll give you the support. And then I went back to try them on once he'd ordered them in. And the young guy there's like, I don't know, man, you could just try like stretching. <laughs> I was like, you know, in 20 years. You're going to feel this yeah. vulnerability. Um, but yeah, the freedom of do like, it's funny because if you're like, oh, I'm on a, you know, I work out six times a week with a trainer. People are like, good for you, Shreve. 
good for you, David. Like, yeah, that's what you should be doing. Or, oh, I'm really into my tennis game. But you're like, yeah, I'm into skating. They're like, what kind of a loser are you, man? You're in your 40s. What are you doing skating? You have a child and a mortgage. Yeah. Well, you know, I had a friend who was asking me about this. He's like, what is it that draws people like you to action sports? Because I was a terrible athlete. Uh, you know, I was yes. the most improved player. I think that's what draws us. Yeah. That's what draws us to action sports. Yeah. No, because I, I said, you know, I was the most improved player on my seventh grade basketball team, which just means you're the shittiest player on the team in seventh grade. Yeah. Um, it's not like Jimmy Butler in the NBA when he's the most improved player. It actually means something. But uh, uh, that was like a, a big draw to me. I said, here's the thing in an action sport like surfing or snowboarding. If somebody else is if you're you know, performing shitty that day, you don't bring down the level of performance for everybody else. Yeah. No they, one cares. Yeah, yeah. Which is, I think, the real appeal to it. it in, in a lot of ways, it's selfish. It's like basically because we're not good team players. We choose action sports. There's some truth. <laughs> yeah. Harsh. I got to ask, like, you know, what is the narrative about careers and making your way in the world uh, with your parents, considering you decided to go be a ski bum? Because I can damn well tell you if I told my parents, hey, I'm going to go be a ski bum instead of go to Berkeley, they would have been like, the hell you are. Well, it was it was a sort of gap year thing. Um, So it was always understood that, like, you know, this was not a permanent thing. Um, Yeah. Uh, you know, my parents are the ones who got me into skiing. They're the ones who are the most passionate skiers who like every trip we took as, as a family, as a kid was pretty much to a ski trip. So trust me, they were real happy. I was out in Whistler. They came and visited like three times. Um, but you know, <laughs> you're going to university next year, right? Yeah, 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 of course. Um, but, and I did. And then, you know, spent every Friday in university skiing in Vermont. So, you know, it was Okay. Well, speaking of which, so how do you go from ski instructor to journalist to writing books about yeah the downsides of technology? Um, <laughs> one turn at a time, Sri. One yeah. turn at a time, as T.J. Burke would say. Um, yeah. uh, you know, I mean, we're, we all have multiple loves in our life, right? So growing up, you know, I loved I loved skiing. Um, I loved Weird Al. I loved reading. I, I was a kid who my parents would send me Archie Comics and Newsweek to summer camp, you know, in the mail um, and, mm-hmm. and candy or whatever. Like, I loved the news and I loved reading books and I was reading, you know, novels and nonfiction books like when I was in junior high. Um, and so I always had this love for writing and um, and ideas in the world and I wanted to be you know, in university, a journalist. I wanted to be a war correspondent. And, you know, even though the Iraq war started, I mean, I don't know, like six months after I graduated, I was like, eh, don't really feel like dying. Um, and ended up in Argentina and just writing and had ideas. And, you know, the, one of those ideas turned into a book and, you know, it was I wrote two books about food and, um, and, and, you know, as a freelancer, which is what I've always been, I've never had a job, literally the last job I had was teaching skiing. Um, uh, I've always just had the necessity and the ability, the freedom um, to pursue whatever dumb idea was in my head, whatever curiosity that was sort of nagging at me. And uh, and so the, the first analog book, which is actually the third book I've written, um, that book came out of continually noticing things that were happening, these sort of countervailing trends, which was that, you know, despite all we were hearing and seeing about 
how everything was becoming digital. And this was at the time I first started noticing this, like right after the iPhone was launched, you know, 2007, Mm -hmm. 2008. Um, at the same time, I was seeing all these other things happening that were that were analog, not digital, and they're having this growth. You know, records were coming back, bookstores were reopening in my neighborhood, board game cafes were were appearing in the city around me. Um, everybody was carrying, you know, moleskin journals or other sorts of paper journals. Um, it, there was this growth of all the things that I was being told were obsolete and going away, and yet they continued to grow despite. Um, all the predictions that their demise, despite the sort of naysaying that was going around that. Uh, and I really wanted to know what was behind that, why that was happening. And so that led to the first book um, in this series, if you want to call them, uh, The Revenge of Analog, came out in 2016. But I had the idea, I think almost eight years previously, and it just took a while for that to sort of come to fruition. And this new book, like, came out of that. You know, in that same way of that curiosity, but in in more of a, um, I guess, uh, urgent situation, uh, you know, as it related to what I was going through at the beginning of the pandemic. Yeah, that's that, that was kind of the sense that I got was this was kind of like, a, you know, this is my giant rant on how miserable life was during the pandemic with, you know, some really eloquent with explanations for, <laughs> with context. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, no, without a doubt. And we'll get into that. So one question uh, about your life as a writer, this is something I wonder, having spent time abroad myself, I mean, having lived in different countries, I feel like that has been so informative on my perspective as a writer. I mean, I would not be a writer if I hadn't spent the six months I did in Brazil uh, when I was a graduate student, because that's where I caught my first wave. And that first wave was the start of everything. Uh, A place called Garopaba. Uh, in, in the south of Brazil. Oh, it's Catarina. about two hours. Yeah, Santa Catarina. Got a Garapava, gente. It, my boa onda. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So your Portuguese is good. Brazilian yeah. Portuguese. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, if, if you're if you're a carioca, you have to elongate every word and say, eu gosto. <laughs> like, my boy. Yeah. I, yeah. My I, favorite I, is the um the guys who would hang out outside the butchakims, the little like street side bars in the like flip flops yeah. and the like little singlet, and they and they would speak in this. They would call out to each other in this like it wasn't even words. It'd be like, oh yeah, 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 yeah. 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 <laughs> this podcast brought to you by Shkol. Exactly. Well, so the funny thing is like you go – every state in Brazil is like a different country. Yeah. They speak different. They yeah. look different. So this time I spent you know about two weeks in Minas Gerais. Uh, I was in Belo Horizonte for two weeks. But um, the thing that I wonder is how that has shaped your perspectives and your worldview as a writer because one thing I never forgot when I interviewed Robert Greene about his book Mastery, he said the analogy is biodiversity. He said the more species you have in an ecosystem, the richer that ecosystem is and that – pretty much became sort of my defining philosophy philosophy for how I chose podcast guests, for how I read books. And I found that to be so true. And I wonder you know, for you, having spent time in different countries as a writer, how that's shaped your perspective on, on the world. I mean, <sighs> many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. I, I 100% agree. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, well, let me put it in my analog, my analog digital terms, because that's the language that I've been using for this book and talking about. It's like, you know, digital provides you this binary thing of information. And if you're going to go look up a subject or get into it, you're going to go and find all this information rendered into binary terms. You know, you want to learn about surfing. You can go online, you can watch a billion videos, you can read a billion blogs, you can, you know, learn as much as you can about surfing, about board design, about wave dynamics, about all these sorts of things. Um, and that's great. But uh, when you get in the ocean, that's not going to do very much for you, right? Because the world is analog and we are analog. And 
And that means that we have bodies and our bodies exist in the world and we learn and um, grow by being out in that world. And if you spend your entire life in one place, your growth is limited by what you're able to learn there. Even if you could read all the great works from all over the world and, you know, see every video and, you know, chat with people all over the world virtually, like you, you get nothing um, more in depth and enriching as a human than being out in the world, whether that's out of your house in your neighborhood or out traveling beyond it uh, as far as you can go. The information that you're able to get when you go somewhere, uh, wherever that is, is incomparable to anything you can get through text or images, right? Yeah, and, um, and you know, it reminds me of this this thing at the beginning of the pandemic, I had a friend, you know, this is like week two and, you know, people are like really looking for stuff to do. And friends like, Oh, I went on safari last year. Like I'm inviting you to a, like a slideshow of our safari. Like I put it together. <laughs> and I was like, I cannot do that. Like, no, sorry. Like I've seen pictures of lions in Africa, but like nothing compares to the one time I was in South Africa and I was on a safari. And when I saw a lion, creeping to go chase a warthog at dusk at this park and i'm like like watching its body movements and i'm like my god these are like giant golden retrievers like in the way that they're moving like this is just incredible to watch the you know this it's it's not a picture this is the real thing um i i think that's incomparable i mean it's the reason why i love doing this because it's allowed me to travel all over the world and and not just talk to people in other places, but see and smell and taste and experience everything that that conversation is built around. I mean, that's incredible. It's the the, the shittiest thing about this book is that I wrote it entirely at home from a screen because <laughs> yeah, you know, I remember the the borders were closed in my country. Like I couldn't go yeah. anywhere. Well, so let's get into the book because you one of the very first things that you say. Uh, you know, about the start of the pandemic is that the digital future was finally here and it fucking sucked. I'm sure there are nicer words that better writers would use to describe that realization. But for me, it fucking sucked sums up the experience just about perfectly. And that was early in the pandemic from what it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, you know, if you were to describe a dystopian prison to someone, you're like, you can get whatever you want. You want any food you want, press a button, it's going to come to your house, to your door. You want anything you want delivered, any sort of good. You want games, you want books, you want toys, you want surfboards. You know, click a button, it's going to show up at your door. You want to talk to anyone, click anyone in the world you can talk to. You want to, you know, see any performance, click any performance on a screen, any performer anywhere in the world. Um, you want to go to work, you don't even have to go anywhere, just Click your works there. You do it all. You have a meeting. You don't have to go to a meeting. You don't have to go to a stupid conference. It's right there on the screen. You want a, a boring family reunion? Guess what? You don't have to show up. You can mute yourself and your aunties and, and uncles <laughs> will, will all talk. Um, and no one's, you know, if they ask you why you're not married yet or why you don't have kids, like this is specifically for the for the Indian listeners and the Jewish no. listeners and all the other. Well, <laughs> you know that I was on, a, I was literally on a reality show that came out in the middle of the pandemic. And, you know, I was having calls just like that with everybody that my parents knew. Yeah. <laughs> why aren't you married? That's like, um, it's like, you know, there's this girl, she's a lawyer. I'm yeah. like, great. I'll let you know if I you have should, any legal trouble. You should have called, called her. Um, yeah. 
you know, you, this is it. You can do all those things and, and, and more, but here's the thing. You can never go outside and you can never talk to anyone else in person. Right. But mm-hmm. that's it. This is, you know, you have everything you need here. And I think there was this initial kind of like, Oh my God, we have to do this. Okay. Actually, this isn't so bad. Um, yep. I very quickly realized, and perhaps because I had two young children and I was, you know, dealing with this in their school. So that, you know, I, yeah. I think really like if it was like, Hey, five friends living in a house and all the drugs they can handle, like I think it was a very different thing than, you know, people, but I, you know, everyone I know eventually realized that this fucking sucks. Yeah. Well, look, I, I experienced the three friends in a house with all the drugs and alcohol you can handle. And after a certain point that even sucked. Yeah, of course, because there's a, there's a limit to what you can get out of life from a screen. And there's a limit what you can get out of life by being in sort of one place and having a limited version of the entire human experience. Uh, it's yeah. the, it's what we're talking about. It's like, Oh, I never left my small town. It's like, okay, well that's, that's a limited version of what the mm-hmm. world has to offer. Right. Yeah. And, well, um, and yeah, it was just so absolutely. visceral to me. It was so visceral. Mm-hmm. To me. Well, I love this line where you said one day when we tell our grandchildren about this brief transformational period in history, we will save the particular hell of the Zoom cocktail party for late at night when they're slightly more mature and can truly appreciate horror stories. And I, you know, I think about my one of my birthday parties that took place on Zoom and, you know, Indians are loud as hell and they all talk all over each other. So I literally had to just basically tell everybody, all right, I'm muting all of you fuckers. I'm like, one of you can talk at a time because this is utterly pointless. Yeah. And then, and what they like paid tribute to you. You're like, you were Vladimir Putin or something. And you're like, <laughs> exactly. so let me just say, uh, you are a wonderful friend. And <laughs> next. Yeah. Well, let's, um, talk about work in particular because, you, you know, before you introduce the chapter on work, you talk about Moore's law and you say that no future is inevitable, but I'm fairly certain about two things. One is that digital technology will continue its advance. Moore's Law, the law of market, and the best and brightest ideas will bring us new inventions and innovations in computing, which will unquestionably impact many aspects of our lives. The other is that the analog world remains the one that matters most. It's the centerpiece of any human future, not the slideshow, the room of emotions and relationships, real community, human friendships, and love. And, you know, I remember thinking this is great like i hated going to an office i mean you and i you know people who have worked for ourselves for a long time i was like but then when i saw what you wrote about the office uh it made me realize why i enjoyed having a co-working space in brazil that i went to every day and you know i my dad is basically a retired professor i mean he's not retired officially yet but i'm using his office and honestly it's really nice to have a place to come to. I, I, it, and I'd never had that before. When I worked at home, I felt like there was no boundary between work and play when I worked at home constantly. Yeah. And I think there is a pervasive loneliness to it. I'm someone who's mm-hmm. always worked for myself and I've always worked at home, right? The one office job I had, ski instructing, not included, um, uh, was like at some company in toronto my first summer off university and uh they made newsletters for doctor's offices or dentist offices and my job was to take the newsletter aspiring journalist that i was and print take the address of the dentist 
and place it on the newsletter, tape it on very carefully, put that in a Canon um, image runner copier and photocopy that however many hundred times and then fold those in a machine that if you missed it, it would cut your hands off. Uh, and I did that for weeks on end in a small windowless room. I came home reeking of toner every day. My eyes were red and, um, and it was basically office space. There was a secretary upstairs who was this um, very sort of cherubic, chirpy woman. And she would play FM radio, the hit station on her speakerphone all day. And it was the summer of living La Vida Loca. And whenever that song came on, she'd go, oh, I love that Ricky Martin. There was the guy who was basically Bill Lumberg from Office Space, uh, who was mm-hmm. the manager. He had suspenders and pinstripe suits and had a yellow Porsche outside. Like it was, it was the worst And yet there was something great about being in that environment. I made friends. I had conversations. I would go out for lunch. I would get a muffin. I would be out in the city, the downtown of Toronto, like the big, the big town. Um, uh, And it's the thing that I still love about going for meetings. It's when I go into New York to meet with editors, like there is still an energy and a camaraderie and human relationships to it. And I know that if I stay at home, too long writing or doing research or whatever, I need to go out and find other stimulation. Um, And I think that's the thing that people didn't realize how much some aspects of that they would miss. It doesn't mean Mm -hmm. it's better or worse, but it had a value. And that value went beyond just the personal. Like there's, there's actually long-term, you know, value to a company or an organization, individuals work that comes out of that, interaction with other humans in physical space, right? What we call mm-hmm. the office. Yeah. Um, embodied cognition is one of them where, you know, if you and I are in an office and we're talking about a project, there's probably things about the project that are printed out or put up on a wall or on someone's desk. Maybe there's models. Um, maybe there's posters or things that we're seeing. And all of that builds an understanding as we walk through the space on our day-to-day thing to go get water, to go take a piss, to go for lunch, whatever. We're not only um, seeing these things, but we're bumping into people. We might be saying, oh yeah, hey, sweet, how's that project going? Oh yeah, I'm working on this. And that builds sort of a body of knowledge, which is very difficult, if not impossible, to get across passively online. Online knowledge is a specific thing. It's data. It's it's a PDF document. It's a slideshow. It's a PowerPoint. It's a it's a website. It's it's a thing that I have to send to you and you have to consciously open and look at and read or view or listen to or whatever. It doesn't just happen naturally, right? That's the same with something like culture. It's that it's the same with business relationships, work relationships that are built as human relationships, not just talking about the task we have to do or today's Mm -hmm. deliverables or whatever it is people talk about in offices. Um, Grownups, adults, real people, (laughs) men, men who don't skateboard in their Uh, (laughs) forties. This is the thing that, that, you know, builds the understanding and the growing that leads to ideas, innovations, you know, whatever acquisition, like whatever it is that the business sort of is. There was a study that was done um, that was commissioned or, 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 or paid for by, by Microsoft, but it was, you know, 20 or 30 really um, very uh, accomplished academics who did it sort of midway through the pandemic. And they, they looked at what happened of all of Microsoft's employees across the entire organization. So 60,000, some people at Microsoft, at LinkedIn, at uh, Xbox, at, I don't know, whatever else Microsoft owns. And they looked at what happened to their collaboration as the entire company went virtual. And they said that over time, 
you know, the, the amount of work that was done fine, but like over time, what really suffered and they saw the decline of was communication. Communication became siloed, which is that you and I were on the same team. We talked more often than we'd ever had before because we were constantly on Slack or whatever MS Teams' version of Slack is, um, uh, chatting and, and sharing things. But we didn't talk to people outside of our team. We didn't talk to people outside of our group. And so everything just kind of became narrowed and narrowed and narrowed and reinforced. Like in the pandemic, when you're just talking to your roommates, you're just talking to your family in your house uh-huh. day in and day out. And so you lose information and ideas that become relevant to you. And what they what they predicted was happen is that creativity and innovation which are the currency of the modern economy more than anything were the things that we're going to suffer over the long term because that human connection that happens when people are working together in a shared space was severed and because yeah. you know it, everything was just being directed to the task at hand which is what digital work collaboration technology does best yeah well I think that, you know, there are a couple of things that really struck me when you talked about work. You know, you say that work is not just a series of tasks we take off each day faster and more efficiently to make a dollar. It's a central part of our human experience and something that takes that, – that most of us take tremendous pride in doing well. And, you know, as you were saying that, it reminded me of this – one of the, the rare few things I listened to on a podcast only because it wasn't originally a podcast. Sam Altman uh, at Y Combinator did this entire class at Stanford that he made available online called How to Start a Startup. And he actually said one of the things they found pretty consistently was that remote teams had a higher rate of failure and they recommended against it, uh, particularly in the early stages of starting a company. They're like, we don't recommend this. And I was just like, wow. Um you know, I mean, that, and you know, there's like you can have the the sort of outlier. You know, Jason Fried might be like, yeah, that's BS. He was like, Basecamp doesn't have, a, you know, a requirement, but I, but they do actually meet in person. So I think that that there is something to be said for that. Um, but you also reference, you know, sort of this idea of, uh, you know, working slowly and you know, going deep in your work. To you know, reference our, our mutual friend Cal Newport, uh, where he talks about this idea, you know, that it takes time to develop you know, ideas of depth and it's not the goal in certain cases actually shouldn't be more efficiency because I'm telling you, like as somebody who spends, you know, a lot of time writing about productivity, thinking about it, you know, that kind of forced me to think, okay, you know what, where do I need to slow down? Like, where do I need less efficiency and more friction? And my thought was, I'm like, you know where I need friction is where people are trying to reach me. Like I need to increase the friction there. Yeah, I think, um, you know, it was Cal and a couple of other people I interviewed for the book um, <clears throat> it really, really framed it to be best. And, and and this is the way this sort of the takeaway I have of it. Right. You know, the, the pandemic and the dislocation, like we could talk about the other parts about life after. But work is sort of the, the one that still preoccupies most people, you know. And, and the question is from organizations, from managers, from owners, whatever, from employees is like, do I have to go back to the office five days a week or do I not? How many days do I have to go in? How many days are remote? How many days are not? And that is the the main conversation people are having about the future of work, but it's the wrong conversation. The right conversation is what that should have revealed and the bigger sort of debate that we should be having, which is what does it mean to be productive with work and how do we structure it to make that make sense for most people in a way that isn't tied to this 19th century model of time equals money productivity. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And and I think if you can, if you can start moving beyond that, then that, then that frees up a lot of these things to, 
to have people say, like, where do you actually do the best work, right? How do you work in a way that's that makes sense to you? You know, I, I'm a writer, you're a writer. Like, I work fairly regular business hours. I tend to, like, research and write from, like, 10 till 4, and maybe that's because of the hours of my kids' school and when I got to pick them up and drop them off, um, on, you know, on most days. And uh, I don't work on weekends and I don't work on holidays. And other people I know are like, you know, they wake up at like 4 in the morning and they write like at 5 to like 7 and they like nap. And like it's, you know, they live this like Hemingway, like sort of romantic lifestyle around it. And both work because both are productive. At the end of the day, it sort of makes sense. But in a company... Um, there's this sort of expectation that you will be present and, um, and you will be present at this place and for this amount of time and you'll be rewarded. And the most, the more work you can get, the more we can get you working in this place at this time, you know, you will be rewarded for that or your reward is sort of contingent on that. Um, and what happened was we decoupled the place from the people, but we just transferred that online. I mean, there are companies now that have installed keystroke monitoring technology uh -huh. to say, you know, uh, we noticed that your keystrokes are down 30% between the hours of, you know, uh, you know, two <laughs> 30 and four o'clock, um, three, uh, you know, uh, what's going on there? Uh, you know, we're, we're sending a thing up to upper management to have a fucking drone fly to your house. Like, like what, like horrible Chinese communist party, Xi Jinping fever dreams, surveillance technology is this, where it's like, hey, well, I did the assignment. Like, if if we can't move beyond that in the future and that, you know, antiquated notion of what productivity is in a knowledge economy, right? We're not building Model Ts here. We're creating software and branding campaigns and legal documents and all these things that, like, time is one element of that, but it's a very flexible element. Yeah. Um, then we're not getting at this question of the future work. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the future of education, because one of the things you say is digital remote learning had promised to flatten the divide between wealthy and poor students and schools. And but it actually triggered the opposite. And I, I you know, I had, had a friend who uh, was an attorney and she said that they were really fortunate. She said, look, she's like, I get to work from home, she said, but I have uh, my kids have classmates whose parents are not well off enough to afford childcare. They're out of the house. These kids are left to fend for themselves. And a lot of them didn't even have access to uh, high-speed high, high speed internet that made it possible to access the material they need. Okay, so I am in Toronto. We're speaking today on um, <clears throat> Monday, the 7th of November. Uh, the Ontario schools are currently closed because there is a labor action with the union that does early childhood educators and custodians. So my kids were off on Friday. They're off today. Today, my wife is downstairs, like 20 feet lower than me right now with my two kids who are nine and six in, in fourth grade and, and first grade on a computer, helping them do assignments for the first day of virtual school we're having. Every single parent in this entire province um, of whatever, five million families with kids is crapping themselves right now and freaking out at the hell that we've suddenly been plunged back into by the city audit government and their labor negotiations or whatever. Um, uh, and in the sort of WhatsApp chat for my kids' classes, like it's the parents who 
have the least resources who are the ones whose anger and desperation is coming most out. I have to go to work. What do I do with my child? Right. Um, the, the data long-term, short-term over the course of the pandemic around the world was very clear. You know, the poorest kids in the poorest schools in the poorest areas were the ones who suffered the most, not just learning loss, this idea that they lost out on some, you know, amount of information they would learn because the learning loss really happened across the board. And if everybody in the world has learning loss, it's not like just catching up. Uh, it's not like we're all like off some thing. We can, you know, people will learn at their own pace. That's okay. It was all the other things, right? It was kids who were left unsupervised, kids who were left without their, their, you know, caretakers, kids who were robbed of this environment that for many of them is the environment that's the most safe and supportive that they have in the world, right? Which is school and the relationships with the teachers. And I think the promise of the digital future of education is so off and so wrong for that huge misunderstanding of what education is. The belief in that world of ed tech and someone who's saying, you know, the future of school is going to be virtual or, you know, the building of the metaverse private school of the future um, is that education is the delivery of information. It's teaching you about math. It's teaching you about science. It's teaching you about English. It's teaching you about foreign languages, teaching you about sociology, teaching you about whatever it is you're studying. If you're like in your post-grad degree of, you know, whatever it is you're learning. That's kind of maybe a result of it. But the process of education is a human relationship uh, with a group of people and, um, and an institution and the authority figures, teachers, professors, daycare teachers in that institution who enable the building of knowledge through that relationship, through trust, through understanding, through individualized learning that's not some AI derived thing that will customize what your kid should learn, but by like the real human understanding of knowing that kid and understanding what they're like, right? You know, it's like why every report card my kids have is the same report card that I had as a kid. It's like, you know, really smart, really clever, needs to shut up and like, you know, maybe talk a little less and control their talking, right? And it's like that teacher has seen that student a thousand times and they know how to deal with them and they know how to deal with the quiet shy student and they know how to deal with the student who maybe grows up in a house where violence is a thing and they're all of a sudden acting out in in the kindergarten room it's a human thing and they do it with empathy it's incredible what teachers do and i'm talking about kindergarten to university professors right Mm -hmm. it's an incredible magical thing and the idea that we could just reduce that and deliver it through a video on google classroom is to me astounding, like an astounding assumption that we ever even thought that was a possibility, that that we ever even considered that that would be something that would be a desirable yet, let alone achievable goal. And it's, it's crashed on the rocks of reality. Every student in the world did this, right? Yeah. For at least half a year. And no one I mean, find me a school, find me a, a, a primary school, find me a private school, find me a public school, find me a university, find me a college who's like, you know what? Like, like, you know, some companies did with, with their offices. They're like, you know what? This is the future. We're, this school is staying virtual forever. Find me one. 
Yeah. Well, I, I remember people, particularly at some of these elite universities like Harvard and you know, the, the Ivy League, like what the hell are paying 50 grand for you know, an education we can go watch for free on Zoom? This is ridiculous. Like you say that learning happens in residence halls and dormitories, the campus bars and parties, the hockey rinks and the swim team change rooms on the field and in the stands behind the stage. It happens in the classroom up front at the blackboard, but also in the back as notes pass between desks and idle scribbles lead to deeper understanding of life. I mean, I, I can tell you, like, there's no comparison to what you're talking about. As a Berkeley undergrad, if I had had that experience virtually, and I can tell you this from people, I, my first girlfriend lived at home because her parents lived close to Berkeley. And it, the way we described our experiences, it was like she'd gone to a different college. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems, too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Yeah, her hacky sack game was subpar, to be fair. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's a Berkeley dig, or from what I understand of Berkeley. But it's true, right? Think back to your time at Berkeley. I think back to my time and I went to McGill University, Montreal. You know, think about wherever you went to 
college or if you can go to college, high school or whatever, like tell me something you learned, right? Tell me the most impactful thing you learned. It was not, oh, actually in Trevor Ponish's film is art. He told me about mise-en-scene. Like it wasn't a fact. The facts were there. You absorbed the ones that mattered. You did what you had to, but it was the human learning of how to be another human being in a society society full of human beings at different stages of your life and the knowledge that comes from building relationships, dealing with challenges, dealing with facts, work, learning to work in a group, learning to deal with other people, dealing with physical changes around the world and physical changes to your body. Like that's the heart of education and the facts and figures are the set piece that allows that to happen. Um, that's, that's that sort of deeper reality, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. When you think back to your memories of school, and the and the and the 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 deep memories that had the most impact, or the teachers that you loved, and the ones that made the biggest impact. You know, it wasn't the facts they taught, right? It wasn't it wasn't what they taught. It was how they taught and who they were, and that inspired you to actually care about history, math, drama, gym, whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Let's talk about uh, two things, shopping and culture. Personally, I fucking hate shopping. <laughs> OMG! Even though you say yeah. that they call it retail therapy for a reason. But, you know, I, I think there are two things that really – I'm sure me. there is. Hold on now. I, now, to be fair, yeah. you hate shopping as defined as, you know, in the California mall rat sense of the word. Yeah. But if I was like, three, I'm coming to, I'm coming to Southern California, which I am in a few weeks to L.A., um, like let's go to, you know, Greg Knoll's surf shop in, um, what is it? Santa. San Clemente, probably. San Clemente. We'll go to the Rogers club next door, have a cheeseburger and a, you know, pudding. And then we'll go like check out surfboards. You'd be, I would definitely I, be, I would be I well, let's do, let's do that. Right? If you have time gear, like gear, gear it up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's do that if you have time, but you know, the thing that you say specifically when it comes to shopping is that a cost measured in human lives and health, but also in the greater economic role that commerce was supposed to play for consumers and the entrepreneurs selling to them for chefs and their diners, grocers and weekly shoppers, clothing designers and the people who wear their creations, bike shop owners and bike riders. And I think that, you know, when I think back to it, I lived in Boulder during this time and I had a, a local restaurant that was my favorite place, you know, and I'd be there every Friday. And, you know, there were nights when we were like, all right, break open the DoorDash. Like, guys, don't you think we should order from somewhere local instead of one of the big chains, even though that would be easy? Like, we should support our small businesses. Like, I, I became really mindful of the fact that, wait a minute, because these businesses are, are basically the the backbone of our economy here on our little town. And I walked down Pearl Street and I just remember thinking to myself, like, wait a minute, these are all the places I love and every one of them is one by one shutting their doors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you quoted the the individual before speaking about monocultures, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, the economy of e-commerce, the architecture of it has been built around this notion of monocultures, a sort of winner takes all, where, you know, Amazon will be the place where you go and order everything and, um, it's sort of the one click thing and it's going to be the same for the delivery apps. I mean, the delivery apps really skew their, their, the food delivery apps, like they really skew their offering toward corporate owned brands. Um, and even have created these ghost kitchens to sort of 
like white label and replicate popular independent restaurants. They'll be like, oh, this taco place is doing well. Let's copy their menu. We might even hire their chef away and do it under our own, you know, Uber Eats brand. Uh, we'll call it Ghost Taco or something like that. And like, it doesn't have an independent restaurant, but the more money goes to us and people get their tacos. And I think there was this, this real awakening because before it was like, oh yeah, independent businesses. Okay, whatever, whatever. But like when you walk down the streets of cities and towns in those early days of the pandemic. And you saw the restaurants and stores with the brown butcher paper on them uh, that had gone out of business because of this. It, it really showed you this sort of truly horrific vision of a future where it's like Demolition Man, the movie from 1993, um, where Taco Bell is the only place to survive the fast food wars. Right. And um, and and it, I think it's something that people don't don't want. Um, they may value, you know, buying their Tide Pods from like the cheapest, quickest place. And maybe that's Amazon. But when it comes to food and restaurants and, you know, even shopping for other things like ski goods or, or, you know, surfboards or whatever, like you, you, you want that local knowledge. You want that local connection. You want the ability to go somewhere and have that experience because it actually brings you more than just the thing you're buying. It brings you knowledge. It brings you community. It brings you a certain type of joy. Um, and everybody gets that joy in different places. There's some people who love, you know, going to outlet malls and stuff and other people like me who like that is the worst yeah. possible outcome for any day of the week <laughs> anywhere i could be yeah well you and i should just but I, I i see you 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 made my count you, you made a counter argument for me I'm, I'm with you like i wouldn't buy a surfboard online ever <laughs> you know yeah uh, and i bought a surfboard online during the pandemic because it was just like the store you know there's two surfboards surf stores here in toronto lake surfing um is, is what we do here and you know that the, the they hadn't really had things set up. And I just like, I knew I needed a wave storm. They're like cheap <laughs> one and I bought it. I've caught a lot of waves on that board. Hey, look, that wave, a lot of people do catch a lot of waves on that board. And the funny thing is I, I could shred on that board because it was the only board I had for six months when I graduated from yeah. business school. Uh, but the funny thing is that the wave storm is sort of a universal signal in Southern California that the kook storm. Yeah, exactly. That is literally, it's like, Oh God, there's a big enter. Stay away. God, oh, they're schmucking a wave storm. <laughs> um, but you know, I bought it on, I bought it on Amazon. It got it delivered because you know, there, there weren't other options, but you know, now, you know, when I went and had to go buy a winter wetsuit, like a seven mil wetsuit, I went to surf Ontario and I clicked and collected it from the door. But I was, when I was there, I was talking to them on the phone. I was emailing back and forth about sizing. I wanted to know what it was. And I also through that met people in the community, met people who I then saw at the surf break, got Intel from them about where to go and what days and what apps to check and how to read it. You know, it, 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 it brought me into that bigger thing. And I think it was the same with the restaurants, uh -huh. right? I, you know, I want to be able to order things and have it convenient and whatever, but like, I also want to live in a neighborhood and a part of a city where I have a tremendous option of different types of foods. And I know that if that food is cooked by small independent restaurants and family businesses, especially in an immigrant heavy city like Toronto, it's going to be far tastier than something that's cooked up by Darden Corp corporation or whatever you know the section on culture really struck me because i this is something i've thought about a lot you say when you experience culture in a physical format you're doing it with all of your analog senses you see a performance with your eyes and you hear it with your ears but also the smell of the room it's happening in where the sweat of the performers 
mixes with the scent of the audience and maybe popcorn and spilled beer and the smoke from a burning joint. And I've thought about experiences that we've tried to replicate digitally, you know, things like watching a movie. Like we have a really nice home theater at my parents' house and um, still doesn't compare to going to the movie theater. But I, to this day, think that a concert in particular is the one experience I feel that there is no way to replicate the experience in a digital format of going to, say, the Hollywood Bowl and watching Dave Matthews. Uh, there's just literally no way in my in my mind. And, you know, I think that what you actually say about this also is that when you brought a performance online, you instantly lowered its stakes. Stakes are the potential cost artists endure when they bring culture into the analog world. And you know, I remember you mentioning this about your own keynote speaking engagements, and I found the same thing. I remember I got paid to introduce speakers on Zoom for a healthcare company. Turns out pharmaceutical companies print money, uh, which I learned because the, the fee to literally show up for five minutes and introduce people on Zoom was enough for me to live off of for the next six months. That's incredible. Yeah. Get me that gig. Yeah. Well, go Put me to, on the list. Put for, me in touch with the Merck. Big pharma. People of yeah, they print money. I did. I Because I remember seeing the fee. I was like, how the hell can you pay this much for this? And then I did the math in my head. I was like, okay, let's say you manufacture 10 drugs. Each one costs $200. The patient pays something like 30. You multiply that times a million people who take this drug. Multiply that times 10 other drugs with the same math. I'm like, oh, you literally are printing a million dollars an hour. And saving humanity while doing it. Exactly. Yeah, but yeah. So, so talk to me about this. I mean, I I found the same thing to be true. Like, I noticed as a virtual keynote speaker, I didn't have that same sort of intensity that I brought to it when I would stand on a stage in front of an audience. Yeah, it it was, you know, a version of kind of phoning it in. Like, you know, it, you did your best. It was you. You know, as a keynote speaker, you're doing it for the for the money, right? Um, um, but you, you still take a pride in it. And, and if you do it well and enjoy it, there's a, there is a joy that comes of it from hearing an audience laugh, from seeing their reaction, from people coming up and talking to you about your thing, your idea after. Um, and you don't get any of that online. Uh -huh. And, you know, the first time I realized that I was doing a, um, I was supposed to do like, what was it? Was Kansas City Chamber of Commerce Small Business Awards because my previous book had been about entrepreneurship. And uh, I, it was booked for like April, 2020. So that was canceled, you know, six months later, you know, we're going to do a virtual one or whatever. And I remember like dressing up in a jacket and thing and going to my parents' house. Cause it was quiet. Cause my kids were still at home doing virtual school and sitting there and they're like, okay, so here's the deal, David, like, great. You got your stuff. Um, you know, you're going to do your 30 minute keynote. Um, and then, you know, we're not gonna have time for questions. So it's just, and, and I was like, cool. And it's like, can I see people say, no, 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 we have like, you know, uh, 700 people here from across the region. But, um, but the thing is that, you know, because of the limitations of the, the zoom, you can't see the boxes. So you're just going to see a reflection of yourself. I'm like, okay, so I'm going to be speaking to a mirror image of myself with no outside feedback for 45 minutes. Yeah. Great. And it's, and, and like, that is the definition of insanity. <laughs> You're like, oh, we have this guy in the asylum. He does keynote speeches to a mirror all day. <laughs> Thank you for coming out to my talk to Merck Pharmaceutical. Oh, that guy has been in here for 40 years. Yeah. <laughs> Used to be a keynote speaker until the pandemic broke him. And, and, and the, the one that I really noticed it doing, I gave a talk to um, folks from Microsoft. And um, I was you know, sitting at my parents' 
um, weekend house. It was sort of middle of summer. First of all, who, who, who schedules these things to the end of August? God help the corporate world. But fine, great, happy to do it. Um, and the people were really nice. And um, and so it's on Microsoft Teams. They're sort of um, their app of whatever. And uh, and I I go on. And, uh, all of a sudden, you know, I'm giving my talk, I've, I've done my whole thing and, uh, I'm like 15 minutes in and I'm like, I just see the chat window start popping. I was like, Hey, what's the deal with this? Hey, is this started yet? Hey, what's going on with this? And then I was like, talk to the guy. I was like, can anyone hear me out there? And the guy's like, Oh gosh. Oh, I'm sorry. We didn't start the thing. Right. Like the team at Microsoft teams even had trouble using teams. Um, uh, and I was just, they're like, do you mind starting this again? I was like, no, not a problem. Like, I got time. It's fine. I know what I was going to say. I'll just start from the beginning. But it's like, that's as low stakes as it gets. Yeah. Where you're giving the talk and you don't even, like, it doesn't even matter if the audience is there or not. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. Um, and I think that goes, you know, this is not performance. It's not culture. But it was like, it was the same thing. It was like, I went on that first week and Bruce Springsteen's, Broadway show had just been put on Netflix. My brother had gone, brother-in-law had gone down, flown to New York like earlier in 2020, bought tickets off like StubHub for like, I don't know, 600 bucks and want, went and saw the Springsteen show and said it was amazing. Like the best, one of the best musical and Broadway experiences he's ever had. And he's someone who's seen a ton of shows, you know, used to be an actor in theater school and everything. He was like, it was incredible. So I turned it on Netflix, one of the, you know, April, you know, early April, 2020, and he's like, hey, here's a song about, you know, growing up in uh, Nebraska or, you know, uh, uh, damn about that. And I was like, ah, oh, that's boring. Like, off. What's next? You know, it was uh -huh. just couldn't even care. And I love Springsteen. Um, but it's it's that idea of like that the stakes are lowered. It doesn't matter. And and since I've gone back to seeing concerts and shows. I went to see a fabulous play the other night called The Shark is Broken, which is about the making of Jaws. And it's written and performed by the son of Robert Shaw, Ian Shaw, who is Quint, the the salty uh, captain fisherman in the play. Like, it was so great. You didn't have to think about anything other than the fact that you were there and what was happening on the stage. And it was just so, so perfect in the way that this is the way that the art was designed to be, right? This is how the, you know, music is meant to be seen live. Yeah, you can listen to it, you can record it. It's great, but nothing compares. Yeah. to the real deal. Yeah. Well, let's talk about communication. And I thought I would bring back a clip from an episode with our mutual friend, Cal Newport, about analog communication. Take a listen. I think the key observation is that our social brain doesn't know what to make of ASCII characters on a glowing glass screen, right? It, mm. it doesn't associate that with social connection. It's a completely different part of your brain that's reading, let's say, a comment on a social media post or a text message that's going through the networks of your brain that do reading and abstract comprehension. And it's almost completely unrelated to this highly evolved social network. That social network in our brain, what that requires is the rich stream you get in analog communication, the pacing of voice, the timber, is there limbic consonants? So if you're in person, little things about your body movements, how you're actually framing yourself vis-a-vis -vis the other person. It's an incredibly rich, high bandwidth stream that we have this powerful computer behind our ears that does nothing but thrive on that, take that in, process it, figure it out, integrate that into to your standing in the world and your community. It's very important. And that huge, important social computer doesn't know anything about computer characters. And so 
once you have that recognition, it doesn't mean that like looking at text, what they would call purely linguistic interaction, there's nothing wrong with it, but it's not yeah. scratching the itch. It's like looking at pictures of food versus <laughs> eating food. It's fine yeah. to watch the cooking shows, but you're going to get hungry right. if you actually don't go out there and eat food. And then once you have that realization, like, oh, what I need to thrive socially is I need to make non-trivial sacrifices with close friends, family, and community that, with analog interaction. I thought that would be a perfect way to tee up the things that you wrote about analog interaction. Preach, cow, preach. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, mutual friend of ours who we both admire a lot, but that really struck me. So I'll tell you what really, and I don't know if you found this to be, this observation to be true. So we're close enough in age that we probably watched Back to the Future around the same time. And you remember when we were kids, right. the idea that you could see somebody on the other end of the phone was revolutionary. Like that in our minds was the indication that the that was the future. That was the future. That was the future, right? Telephone, video phone was yeah. the future. And the funny thing is that we've had that capability for probably 20 years. And yep. you know, there's this hilarious uh, line in the, in the TV show, One Tree Hill, where one of the guys is like, can you imagine if texting had been invented after voice? People would say, holy shit, you can hear the other person on the other end of the phone. And it's kind of amazing. Like we defaulted to using text. It took a pandemic for us to say, you know what? I want to actually see this person's face. Yeah, I, I, I think I, I think so. I mean, there was an orgy of video that 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 was sort of the initial the initial um, first pandemic wave of kind of digital was just an orgy of video like Zoom became a verb. And an adjective all of a sudden. Let's zoom. Are we zooming? Are we doing a zoom thing? It's a zoom. And, and like nobody loved the zoom more than the baby boomers. They were like, oh, we'll do a zoom. It's like there's two of us. We can just do a phone call. Mm -hmm. It's okay. We don't have to. But it it was this thing. It's like, well, this is great. We can now see people's faces. Um, but very quickly, very quickly, we all realized the limitation of that, that that was insufficient um, for so many different things in our life. And when we're, you know, when I talk about the sort of overarching, it fucking sucked of this dive into the digital future, the, the unifying element of all these different things that we're talking about was video and video conversation, right? Work, school, your social life, your religious life, your cultural life. Um, all these things were really linked by that, talking head on a screen um, and, and the conversations between them and what suddenly that revealed about what was lacking about them, which is everything that Cal Newport said in that clip, which is like, you and I can have a great video conversation, but it is operating at a fraction of the fidelity, the analog fidelity of a face-to-face -face conversation. Mm -hmm. And that conversation is a very different thing that even if the same words are said, the context of speaking to another human as we've evolved to speak as humans changes the meaning of the conversation, changes the way we interpret those words, right? I, I got an email from someone who I'm doing work with in a project the other day. And, you know, we're just sort of figuring out a relationship. And like the text of the email was like, hey, did you get this thing? And I spent the weekend mulling over the, you know, nerve and the this and the that. And it's like, Oh, if I were to just speak to that person face to face and there's a hey, did you get that thing, 
I would understand. I would understand the tone. I would understand the body language. But when we take things into text or even into video, we rob a lot of that context. What what Cal was saying, right? The body language, the the imperceptible signals, even scent, um, the context that that's happening in, in the environment that we're in. Is this is this happening in a courtroom? Is this happening in a protest? Is this happening in a bar? Is it happening in the street? Is it happening, you know, in good weather? It's happening in bad weather. Like all of that feeds into what's happening. But the one thing for certain is that this is something that we actually need. And, you know, the research took me a little bit into what we were talking about is this sort of great health crisis of the 21st century, which is loneliness, the epidemic of loneliness, which is a scourge in the developed world and increasingly in the developing world and has been shown to be one of the leading indicators of premature death for all sorts of groups all over the world, right? And what's loneliness? Loneliness is a lack of conversation with other human beings face-to-face, it's, you know, you think of the people who are lonely and they might be having conversations in chat forums or online or on video games or maybe in video calls with people for work, but they're fundamentally, you know, isolated from the world and that isolation kills them. Um, uh, and, and so, you know, what was interesting was I, I ended up speaking to people who work in these social and health organizations to create opportunities for lonely individuals and isolated individuals to have face-to-face conversations. There's something called social prescribing, which was pioneered by the National Health Service in the UK. And it's essentially doctors' offices and clinics who were seeing individuals with health problems that were not addressed by doctors or drugs. And what they really needed was social connection and communication. And so they build these support outreach workers who go and help these people connect to the people through groups that meet once a week and talk about, I don't know, sports or gardening groups that go and plant a community garden together. It's like, what is the excuse? Oh, here's a surfboard repair workshop for these dudes um, in Southern California or car repair, whatever it is. And it's like, get these people together in the same space. They will inevitably have to talk to each other because we've built some sort of thing. They can't sit there in silence in the same room. And out of that will come the necessary health and healing that they need, right? That is a, we need it as much as we need air. Like, like, like Newport said, you know, we need it like we need food. We do. We actually need conversation face to face in the way that we need nutrition. And I think you could probably reflect on this from your own experience during those days of lockdowns and whatever, like the lengths we went to as human beings to have a real face-to-face conversation with people that mattered to us. Um, You know, driving to a park and like talking to someone from the opposite end of, you know, a field or going for walks in snowstorms or, you know, people even like parking their cars and opening their windows and chatting. It's a very American thing. (laughs) It's like, just get out of your car. No, no, no. Yeah, please. Let's, we don't need to. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I was really, really fortunate that I happened to move in with, you know, two good friends right before the pandemic started. And we kind of all agreed, like, we would not have gotten through it without each other. Like, it was actually, you know, because we had each other, it actually ended up being okay. But if we didn't, God, I can't imagine how miserable I would have been. No, the, the two worst groups of people for that, that lived through lockdown um, the, the people who suffered the most, uh, other than people who got sick or immunocompromised, like I'm leaving that aside, right? Non, non-medical suffering, social suffering. The two 
uh, most pitiable groups of people were people like me with young children at home who had to do virtual school or just had young children at home and like their life just became a horrendous circus. Um, and it, people who were single and completely alone. Yeah. Right. And I remember talking to people like that, um, friends of mine or, you know, my brother at one point was living by himself and it was just like so isolating. Um, you know, w when you think about our greatest punishment as a society outside of death, um, and my country doesn't have capital punishment among other wonderful rights, um, you know, our greatest, what's our greatest punishment as a society? We will remove you from other human beings, you know, and even within the context of a prison, your greatest punishment as a context within a prison, you will be removed from other prisoners. We will put you in your own cell and you will not be able to talk to anyone else, right? That is the greatest single punishment we have as a society or in the world outside of, you know, physical harm and, and, and killing people. Um, and, and, you know, the world of sort of social media, the world of online conversation, it does that as a default. Uh, and it's, it's tragic. Yeah. Well, let's talk about one other thing here that I think to me was really fascinating is your take on VR. You know, you say that it takes profound arrogance and naivete to believe that the metaverse is the future we should collectively aim for. That notion completely ignores everything we experienced and learned over the past two years. It doubles down on the horrible antisocial experiences that the pandemic forces into online as if the solution to our isolation, unease and disembodied discontent were simply a matter of giving us a better pair of VR glasses to let us see more flying horses or flying houses or whatever animated bullshit Zuckerberg is peddling. And it got me thinking about Ready Player One uh, when you said that and how there are certain aspects of it when I would watch that. I was like, this is cool. I mean, I have an Oculus and like there are some cool things that you can do with it. But I don't find in any way that, you know, this is going to replace my ability to physically touch somebody or feel somebody. It, it, there's just that to me is I'm, I'm under no delusions that that's what this will provide. But my old roommate, his fear was that this was going to do exactly what you're talking about. It was basically shackle people to these glasses and they would never leave their houses. I mean, that's the goal, right? You see, you know, Meta's fortunes are tanking because um, people aren't picking this up. And, and you know, if if Zuckerberg's out to build the next great platform that people are going to go on and then assumably, you know, they can sell all the, the ads to them, it's the more time that their eyes are strapped to those things the better it is, right? You know, he talks about it. If you've seen him in interviews or listen to him in interviews, he talks about it as the future of human connection. The future of human connection is going to happen because you're going to be a hologram and I'm going to be a hologram. And isn't that going to be great that we're going to be, you know, a thousand or 2000 or 5,000 miles apart. And yet you can be this realistic hologram in front of me. And that's going to be just like talking to you in, in person. And it's, it's such a cynical future to believe and behold in, right? It, it, it's it's like, hey, this technology is possible and therefore we should do this to its fullest extent versus saying like there, what does this serve? What good does this serve? I'm not saying that there are not purposes for virtual reality that are going to be good or even great, right? Entertainment, gaming, fine. That's an easy one. But even in work and, and design, you know, I talked to someone and he was working with virtual reality and 
and you know aerospace engineers and and using the the virtual reality technology to get inside a working engine as it's actually firing um based on the data that the sensors are showing to show where there might be a flaw in a way that you physically couldn't do right that's incredible surgery whatever you want to call it right all these sorts of things it can be this complementary interesting experience but but zuckerberg's proposing with the metaverse and other people like him and maybe you know ray kurzweil and the sort of and notion of the singularity is like, no, 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 this digital world that we're creating is going to be the utopian new world that we're all going to transcend into, that this will be a better version of the world we're living in. If only you head over to Dr. Jones over there, who has this wonderful vat of Kool-Aid and take a sip of it, all your problems will be solved. Don't don't look at the Kool-Aid too much um, uh, and, and what goes on there. And yes, I'm comparing the metaverse to Jones <laughs> in a horrible and insensitive way. but. You know, it's 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 this notion of kind of technological utopianism taken to its extreme that actually like we don't need to improve the world we live in. We don't need to re-engage with it. We need to build a better escape pod for it. And this will allow us to sort of transcend that um, and and and, you know, build whatever we want in that world. And uh, and I just think it's. It's first of all, it's something that nobody I know is truly deeply interested in. Like people are like, yeah, I'll play with it. I'll I'll do a thing. But no one's like, yeah, I'm totally 100 percent all in. Like, I never want to leave my house. I just want to strap myself into this thing. Um, And yet that's what's sort of being sold or being pitched or being hoped upon by by Mr. Zuckerberg. I don't remember the the name of the place they go to in in Ready Player One. Uh, It's not called the metaverse, but they have a name for it. But the funny thing is so much of the movie takes place in that digital world that you don't really notice how fucked up it is when he takes the glasses off and he's like in this trailer and you look outside and you're like, whoa, what the hell happened? Right. Exactly. And that's it. It's like we live in a world right now, which is literally on fire because of previous future choices we made about technology a hundred years ago when people like cars, I don't know, should we build our future around them? And everyone's like, yep, yep. This is the future. Don't stand in the way. And now we're, you know, choking to death and, and, and literally our world is burning. Um, and we're dealing with, you know, political polarization that's exacerbated by digital technology. We're dealing with war and conflict, you know, in Ukraine and all over the world. We have real world problems to get to. And, and, and the, the solution to that is actually getting back in touch with humanity and, and getting real. The, the solution to the future of education is figuring out how to make human beings learn in a way that makes them more creative and more resilient and getting in touch with their humanity. It's not saying, oh, you know, now we're going to give every kid a pair of Oculus goggles because that's the future, which, you know, a friend of mine works at a very fancy private school and some parent donated 300 grand so they could build a metaverse, you know, lab. And they're like, okay, we have to take your money. Um, But that's not the future of education. Maybe you can play a role, but that's, that's not it. So what did we learn from this, you know, six months, year, two years that we had to live only on what digital technology allowed us to do. If we can't take a step back and have a hard assessment of the pros and cons of that, of what worked for us and made us better as humans and what didn't, then we're going into the future blind and sort of with one hand shackled behind our back. 
Well, I have two last questions for you. One is just out of personal curiosity, because I remember when you know I contacted you and you asked, do I want a physical version or a digital version of the book? I was like, of course I want a physical version. And it didn't show up and it was a pain in the ass until it did. Um, so when you look at digital media consumption habits, I, I've just always wondered about this. Like, What is the difference between reading a physical book versus reading it on a screen because I, you know, for the little bit of research I've done, I know that you tend not to read as much when you read on a screen. You scan. Um, I think Marianne Wolf, if I remember correctly, wrote a book about this uh, where she said it's just like an F pattern. And I've known pretty much all of my really successful friends who are writers who have you know, written really great books Cal Newport, Ryan Holiday, Danny Shapiro, all of them swear by physical books. They're a pain in the ass to carry. Uh, my house has so many books that I literally need a room for my books. But you know, when I was in Brazil, I couldn't get stuff delivered from Amazon, so I defaulted to my iPad, and I hated it. Yeah. Um, well, you know, the, the proof is in the pudding, right? You know, ebooks have been around, let's say the Kindle, since 2007, so about as long as the iPad or the iPhone or whatever. And there were predictions at the time. This is like my first book came out in 2009. So I'm like, oh, God, I'm screwed. I'm like a someone's cranking out CDs and it's Napster time. And the entire industry was sort of freaking out, right? Amazon was going to push the hell out of this. They, they, you know, it was in their interest to, to do this, right? Bigger profit margins. They would own the sort of means of production, if not the sort of the, the, the product itself. Um, and this way they could really screw those bookstores and put them under and the publishers put them under their thumb and everybody was really worried. And here we are, it's, you know, 15 years later, um, ebooks are like 10% the market audiobooks are another 10%. So for every book that I sell or every like 10 books I sell, one of them is going to be an ebook. Some people prefer them, right? It's, it's the the portability of it is great. The fact that you can just tap and buy it right away is great. The backlight thing is great. So if you're sleeping with a spouse in the bed and, you know, their spouse goes to bed two hours earlier than you do, I'm speaking from sheer personal experience, you know, you can read at night in bed and uh, have this backlight thing. And it's wonderful. And I had a Kindle for a while and I read a bunch of great mm -hmm. books on it. Um, and then when I started researching Revenge of Analog, I had to read a whole bunch of books. So, you know, I busted out my library card and went to the Toronto Public Library and grabbed a bunch of those books in paper because the Kindle couldn't accept ebooks from a library because Amazon didn't allow that. And as soon as I like cracked open one of those books, um, uh, maybe it was Kevin Kelly's What Technology mm -hmm. Wants or something. I was like, oh, this is so much better. <laughs> like, I don't know why. I can't put my finger on it. But this is how my brain and body prefers to read. And, you know, I say this in the talks I give. There's no logical reason for anyone to buy a book, right? If you buy a copy of The Future is Analog in digital, you know, your ebook copy from Kobo or Amazon or whatever, you are getting no less information. All the words are the same. You don't get any extra words. You know, when you buy the, the, the print copy, you just get like a nice fancy jacket and whatever, right? You get a bunch of dead tree. But like the information is the same, so it shouldn't matter. And the reality is it does matter. 
context matters. Physicality matters because once again, we are human beings. We are physical creatures. Look down. Stop listening to this podcast and look down at your hands. Those are real. Touch them to your face. That's real, right? And and we actually get value out of that, even if we can't put a number on it, even if we can't put a dollar sign on it. And I think that's a bigger metaphor for and a bigger lesson for everything that I'm talking about in this book, which is that, yeah, we can take the entirety of quote unquote human existence and somehow digitize the important aspects of that and deliver it through a screen or deliver it through headphones or deliver it over the internet and you will survive and get by and not die or you will get your tasks done or you could do your job or you can still be a good Hindu or Jew or whatever because you can attend your service online. But nothing beats the real thing because we are the real thing. Um, and I think books is just this perfect example of it where, you know, this these predictions of the death of the book like they didn't, not only do they didn't come to pass, nobody makes them anymore because it's, it's, it's just now just seen as this ridiculous thing. Like book sales are keep growing and bookstores keep growing and independent bookstores keep opening. And it's this sort of great example of the lasting value of analog that goes far beyond any quantitative measure of what we should be doing or what the future should look like. It's it's a very deeply human thing that just feels right. Well, I think that makes such a, a perfect place to wrap up our conversation. So I have one final question, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes something somebody or something unmistakable? Um, I think it's the individuality of everything that's been in their life up to that point, right? Uh, you can have two siblings from the same house literally grew up in the same room and they're two totally different people. And that's because of everything that's happened to them day in and day out from every sort of moment um, that makes someone individual and unmistakable. I think it's like lived experience is everything. Amazing. Uh, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story, your wisdom and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, your book and everything else that you're up to? Uh, the book is available for sale wherever books are sold. If you decide to buy it online and, and, uh, as an ebook, that's okay. <laughs> I'm happy. I'm happy. I don't care. I'm not one way or another. If you want to listen to this voice for 11 hours reading the book, you can get it on audiobook. We're listening to one and a half speed. It'll sound like this. Fine. Totally cool. Otherwise, go to your local independent bookstore because, you know, it's not just a place that sells books. It's a place that, has events. It's a place where people take their kids when their school is canceled and their children are on strike. It's a place that is the intellectual heart of any community, big or small. And I think they need your support, not just with like yays on Twitter, but actually going in and shopping and talk to the people there. If you like this book, ask them what else they might have. If you don't like this book, ask them what else they might have, right? Build a relationship. Um, so yeah, that's where you can find out about it. You know, if you want to reach me, I have a website. You can find it, saxdavid.com, maybe. Um, I'm also on Twitter, at saxdavid, but or how how long will we be on Twitter <laughs> that's for? That's a whole other conversation. That's, a, that's another episode in and of itself. That's a, yeah. Amazing. <laughs> well, for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.